1: plushcare.com slash weight loss
0: welcome back to the women's podcast i'm roisin Ingle. it's thursday march 25th and where i am the sun is shining the sky is blue and while we're still locked down we're still here But here in the Women's Podcast, we have a spring in our step because this week, Secretary of Northern Ireland, Brandon Lewis, has intervened in the abortion issue in Northern Ireland. As many of you will know, while a new law came into force last year after MPs in Westminster voted to decriminalise abortion, the reality for women in the North is that many are still having to travel to get abortion services. This week, Brandon Lewis stepped in and said the Northern Ireland executive needs to sort out the situation and agree on provision of abortion services because there are human rights obligations that Northern Ireland politicians need to follow through on. We're going to be looking at that in a moment, but later on in the podcast, I'll be talking to Catherine Talbot about her debut novel, A Good Father, which is a chilling account of a seemingly upstanding husband and a dad who is not what he seems.
2: The whole concept of hurting the people that you love the most in the world is just so unfathomable to me. That's something that's always struck with me through all these cases. How can this happen? And, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get into the mind of, of somebody who on the outside is supposedly, in inverted commas, normal to the outside community and work out how, how can this happen.
0: But back to the abortion situation in Northern Ireland. Cara Sanquest is a wonderful young Irish woman who was a key figure in the London Irish abortion rights campaign back when we were all working towards repeal. And she now works with Labour MP Stella Creasy, who, of course, was so important in getting the abortion issue on the agenda at Westminster. Stella Creasy worked tirelessly on making sure that abortion was decriminalised so that women in Northern Ireland would have the same rights as women in London, Manchester, Glasgow and Cardiff. These days, Cara Sanquist is still working and fighting for women and girls in Northern Ireland and she came on the podcast to update us on the latest twists and turns in that particular conversation. I began by asking Cara why, when the legislation has been in a year now at this stage, women and girls in Northern Ireland are still having to travel for abortions.
1: Thanks, Roisin. Yeah, that's right. Um, So in July 2019, Parliament in Westminster voted to decriminalise abortion and to um, make sure that women in Northern Ireland had access to abortion on human rights um, standards. but since then, the Department of Health in Northern Ireland and the Minister of Health in Northern Ireland haven't taken any action to put this into effect. So at the moment, women and girls in Northern Ireland don't have access to abortion on the grounds they're legally entitled to. Um, so the change in the law has had some impact. So abortion has been decriminalised. So women that were in the courts, for example, their charges have been dropped. So that is progress. But unfortunately, there if you are a woman in Northern Ireland at the moment and you need an abortion, there is no clear pathway for you through the health service. To access that, there is a limited service in place for abortion up to ten weeks. But actually, what the human rights obligations require is that women have abortion um, have access to abortion up to twelve weeks on request. Then between twelve and twenty four weeks on health grounds, and then over twenty four weeks on grounds of severe fatal uh, fetal impairment or where there's a risk to their life or their health. And that isn't in place at the moment. Um, So women are still being advised to travel by the Northern Ireland office. Um, uh, Even during the pandemic, they're being advised to travel to Britain to have an abortion. So more than a thousand abortions have actually been
0: carried out, which, like you say, it is progress. And the sort of legislation that we should be seeing up there, the decriminalisation actually goes much further than our own um, abortion rights that we have in, in the Republic, which it will be fantastic if that actually gets into place. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, the politicians are trying to block it up there. And the Northern Ireland uh, secretary has intervened. Tell us about that. He's trying to compel the politicians to get their act together.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So um, because there's been no action from the devolved institutions, the Secretary of State has this week stepped in and that's a really welcome step um, because what the change in the law did, which Stella and, and other MPs achieved, was to vest responsibility in the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Um, to make sure that um, abortion on human rights grounds comes into place in Northern Ireland. So even though the devolved institutions haven't, haven't acted and haven't progressed this, he still has a responsibility to make sure it happens. So this week, he's given himself additional powers, which he didn't have before. So he now has the power to direct any relevant department in Northern Ireland, public health agencies, health trusts, the Minister for Health, even the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister, to ensure that the delivery of abortion services is achieved. Um, and the reason for this is because there have been grave and severe violations of human rights in terms of abortion access in Northern Ireland. And devolution doesn't absolve the Secretary of State of his responsibilities. And I think it's important to note that um, to date, Westminster, before the change in the law, Westminster constantly relied on the fact that devolution was in place um, to sort of absolve themselves of that responsibility. So it's really welcome now that that argument has been completely broken down. And actually, the Secretary of State is taking proactive steps. But
0: and yet um, the, some of the politicians in Northern Ireland are still sticking to their guns and saying this is a devolved issue. This has nothing to do with, um, you know, the overpowering British government. The Northern Ireland secretary isn't, you know, isn't involved in it. So it's kind of this standoff in a, in a weird way. Can you tell us where the politicians, particularly the DUP and other parties, stand on the issue of abortion?
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, it's it's really not ideal that the British government is having to step in and the way to avoid that would have been for the devolved institutions to bring in um a human rights compliant abortion legislation in the first instance. Um, and that that is how um, this intervention could have been could have been avoided. Um, in terms of the parties in Northern Ireland, there's five parties in power sharing at the moment. The DUP are the largest and they're anti-abortion, um, about as anti-abortion as it gets actually. Um, and for any change to come about all the parties would need to agree. Um, the parties are very much behind the people. A poll last year in Northern Ireland found that 70% of people are in favour of decriminalisation. So, yeah, the the parties are not sort of representative um, of of how people feel about this issue.
0: Right. And there
1: was um, a bill that
0: the DUP tried to bring in uh, last week. Can you tell us about that? Because that was about the cases of non-fatal disabilities and it was actually backed by a majority of um, Assembly members there.
1: Yeah, so um, there was a bill introduced by the DUP to block abortion in the case of severe fatal um, impairment, and that's something which is included in the regulations which need to be introduced. Um, So that was really an attempt to block these regulations coming into play. So, although they were sort of talking about this very specific circumstance they wanted to block abortion access in, we know that they're opposed to the whole package, and we know that it's an anti choice tactic to try to whittle away the grounds um, where women are entitled to abortions. Ultimately, to try to block access in any case. Um, so, twelve out of eighty-seven MLAs voted against that. And interestingly, Sinn Fein's twenty-seven MLAs abstained on that vote, um, which is, I suppose, quite disappointing to see as Sinn Fein present themselves as a pro-choice party in the Republic of Ireland. Um, so, it was really disappointing to see them sort of sit that one out um, and not stand up to the to this anti-choice bill.
0: What they've said is that they're just not playing the DUP's game, that's why they abstained, but is the truth really that they actually are not in favour of um, the wider abortion uh, rights, uh, such as the non-fatal disabilities
1: yeah, so Sinn Fein's party policy, as I understand it, doesn't um, extend to um, abortion acts being in favour of abortion access in cases of severe fatal impairment, um, and that's going to really come into play in the Arachus and in the Republic of Ireland quite soon. So the the three review of the abortion legislation in in the Arachus is is kicking off now, and one of the huge things which which needs to be addressed is access in the case of fatal fetal abnormalities as it stands it's not working a doctor needs to be able to give a definitive diagnosis that your baby won't survive after 28 days and we've heard from termination for medical reasons um, a huge amount this week about how that's not working and and families who receive devastating diagnoses um, are still being forced to travel to Britain so that's something that I think many pro-choice campaigners and many families will want to see changed in the in the review in the Oireachtas, um, and we know now where Sinn Féin stand on that.
0: Yeah, and we're talking, uh, Cara, I suppose, about uh, the Northern Ireland uh, being in contravention of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which is called the CEDAW Um, regulations?
1: Yeah, so the commission which oversees the Committee for the Elimination of Discrimination Against uh, Women, um, the UN Committee, they did an investigation into Northern Ireland specifically and they found that their um, laws were in breach of human rights. The same type of investigation hasn't been done for the Republic of Ireland, um, but a lot of the factors are the same, so you can imagine that they would have similar findings. I mean, so long as women are being forced to travel to access basic health care to another country, their human rights are not being upheld. It's a severe violation of human rights. It's degrading um, and it poses health risks as well during the pandemic. I mean, in Northern Ireland, people have been advised to travel against public health advice, um, sometimes to areas where there's more COVID infections um, than, than the place where they were coming from. Um So, yeah, it's it's definitely something that needs to change across both jurisdictions.
0: Cara, I know you have a busy morning ahead, but can I just ask you, is it frustrating for you as someone who has worked so hard for so long on the decriminalisation of abortion in Northern Ireland to see the politicians there really working so hard to deny women uh, their reproductive health care?
1: Yeah, it's, it's really frustrating. Um, I think it's, it's most frustrating thinking of the women and girls today who are probably still being advised to go on a plane or a boat to England to access abortion, even though the law changed nearly two years ago now. Um, and it's really frustrating to know that um, despite public health advice to stay at home, that you know, women are being asked to choose between following public health advice or accessing the healthcare they need by travelling. Um, but I suppose I do. There is hopeful signs. So the the change in law was supported by a massive majority in Parliament, three hundred and thirty two. Um MPs voted for and ninety nine against so we've got we've got sort of that behind us this week um eighty eight MPs from across all parties um signed a letter saying they support the Secretary of State in his intervention um and that includes um MPs from the SDLP and from the alliance party. So I think that's really positive to see. What we need to see now is the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland use the power that he's taken. Um, He's sort of giving devolved authorities one last chance. But if if there's no progress soon, we need to see him use that power. I mean, it is great to see Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, stepping in and basically saying that
0: Stormont has had more than enough time to get its act together to sort this out. And he's sort of saying, no, enough. If you can't do it, I'm going to I'm going to do it. It is really great to see that. At least it shows, Will, that they're not just letting it kind of l- lay in abeyance.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think you're starting to sound as frustrated as us at this stage. No, I'm very impartial. Have you not noticed? <laughs> um, but yeah, it is frustrating. And I mean, today, what's starting at half 11 is the DUP have secured a debate in Westminster again to try to raise raise this great. issue and to try to argue that no action should be taken. It's not the place of the Secretary of State Um So I mean, it it goes on and on. Um, Les Allenby, the chief commissioner um, of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission this week, described the situation of this sort of passing the book as a Kafkaesque pass the parcel where the music never stops. Um, And I think that's that's what's been happening. And it's ultimately women and girls have been paying the price. But we hope that the music is going to stop soon and the Secretary of State is going to take action. Well, let's hope so. Just one final
0: word, Cara, before you go back to Westminster. What's actually going to be happening in that debate? And what's your involvement? Because you have an interesting job working with Stella Creasy, MP.
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, so the debate um, will be, so Brandon Lewis will have an opportunity to make a statement on what he's doing. Carla Lockhart, the DUP MP who secured this debate, she will have an opportunity to respond. Um, and then Stella and other MPs, including Stephen Ferry from the Alliance Party, will be um, intervening as well and asking the Secretary of State questions. Um, So really it doesn't have a procedural impact um, but it is an opportunity for sort of all sides to air their opinions once again on what they think women should, should and shouldn't be allowed to do.
0: And Cara, take out your crystal ball for me and tell me what you think this is going to all end up with. Are we going to see a situation where the CEDAW uh, regulations are agreed with and, you know, women and girls in Northern Ireland are actually going to be better off than women and girls, even in the in the 26 counties?
1: Um, well, uh, I I hope that we will see CEDAW recommendations implemented in Northern Ireland sooner rather than later. And then I think what happens, what we need to be aiming for in the Republic of Ireland then is to is to reach those kind of standards as well. So particularly in the areas of fatal fetal abnormality where we know it's not working.
0: So we have another fight in our hands, Cara. Basically, if we were all delighted about Repeal the 8th, and we know that that has been absolutely massive. But we still have uh, strides to gain in this area and we just can't be complacent about it.
1: Yeah, as long as anyone is being advised to go on a plane to England and to access health care, I don't think the fight is over.
0: Okay, Cara Sanquist, thank you very much for joining us and good luck today. Thanks, Roisin. And that was Kara Sanquist there. And we'll be hearing, I hope, from Kara again soon because we'll keep in touch with that situation as it evolves. And as Kara mentioned, the expansion of abortion rights and services in the Republic is also on the agenda again now. So we'll definitely be returning to that issue uh, in the next few weeks and months. Now, when I read A Good Father by Catherine Talbot, I had a bit of a sleepless night afterwards. And you won't really blame me when you hear that it's about a man who decides to murder his wife and his children. But it's about even more than that, as we continue to learn more about the shadow pandemic that has made the lives of so many women even more intolerable. The shadow pandemic being domestic abuse and coercive control Uh, So Catherine Talbot's book is very timely and it's a real masterclass in explaining the subtle and difficult to detect crime of coercive control. Catherine lives in Dublin with her husband and two children and we talked about her book, about the crime of familicide and about why this subject was one that she decided to tackle in her first novel. Here she is, Catherine Talbot, author of A Good Father. Catherine, I'm just going to start by reading out the first very memorable line of your new novel. It says, by the end of next summer, before the kids go back to school, I will kill my family. Will you tell us about this book, A Good Father?
2: Hi, Roisin, you to be here. So, yes, A Good Father is a psychological suspense novel. The opening line is, I suppose, a very catchy Catchy line, and the idea there is to I suppose hook the reader into the story between Des and his wife Jenny
0: so tell us about Des and Jenny because I think when I read your book i i couldn 't stop thinking about it. It is a very chilling story, but it also, because of your skill as a writer, it stays with you because it feels very, very real. Um, These are a couple, kind of middle class, living in a Dublin suburb. And, you know, to the outward world, this looks like a very functional, normal relationship with three kids, twin boys and an older girl. So, yeah, tell us about them and, and what sort of people might see from the outside if they didn't know into the mind of Des, who has admitted in the very first line that this is what he's planning.
2: So Des is obviously, you know, a very unlikable character, who does absolutely terrible things. Um, And I suppose I wanted to get inside the head of uh, the perpetrator of these type of crimes because that's something that's not hugely common in literature. So I wanted to explore how is it actually possible that we can hurt the people that we love the most in this world? I suppose um, writing Des, you know, um, sometimes it's easier almost to write dark characters, but then when you read it back, it seems more difficult to know than actually writing the dark character because it kind of brings up so many facets, you know, that you're not even aware as you're you're writing the novel. I think I was trying to capture things in Des's life that are slightly relatable to the reader so that they may be able to, you know, on some level recognise his daily frustrations and then somehow get into his mind and kind of try and grasp how his responses to... These things are so kind of off kilter and explosive. The other difficulty that arose in writing the novel was in the very beginning, there's Jerome, which is the other character, which is Jenny's ex boyfriend. And, um, I just kind of needed to explain how she came from, you know, one relationship to another relationship. Like Jerome himself wasn't a particularly nice character either. So that's kind of another facet, you know, of the book. Through no fault of their own, sometimes women can choose, you know, the wrong kind of people to be in a relationship. And sometimes they can move from one wrong relationship to another relationship. So I also needed, again, going back to the reader and relatability. One of the difficulties with Des was trying to set him up as a character that would be charming enough. In the first place. So so we'd understand as a reader how Jenny could actually um, fall for somebody, you know, who's going to do, do this to her ultimately. And in their in their day to day relationship, um,
0: I mean, it's Des who kind of calls the shots really in the house. So he, he decides what's going to be on the telly. He decides what's for dinner. He, you know, he's very demanding in terms of when they have sex and that kind of thing. And I mean, really, for me reading the book, because it's been something that we've talked a lot about on the women's podcast, particularly recently, is coercive control. I think it's a, what you've done is really incredibly important because, in a, obviously it's a novel and it's, it's made up, but, It feels reading it like a very, very good description Mm. of something that is very topical at the moment, because, of course, with the pandemic, uh, which they're calling the shadow pandemic, is the increase in domestic violence as well, which includes coercive control. I'd be really interested to hear about that and how you kind of realised, probably almost writing it, that that's what you were doing.
2: Yeah, it's a very good question, Roisin. I think when I was writing the novel, you know, it was really just about this character, Des, who was very strong. Um, It was only when a good father actually got to proof stage that I realised that What I was writing about was course control because, as I said before, you know, the term course control, you know, wasn't in the media at that point. Um, It was only it wasn't it wasn't a a term that I was at all familiar with. Um, So when the when the novel got to proof stage, when it was actually printed. I realised that this, what I was describing actually was what they were talking about on on the media, you know, coercive control. And at that point, I got in touch with my local TD, Jennifer Carr McNeil, who was doing quite a lot of work in legislation towards coercive control. So I was just talking to her about that. So, yeah, it is, um, you know, it's it's kind of very sad in a way that it is more timely, as you said about the pandemic. You know, there and you know, there are more cases. Um, so I suppose in a way it is it is almost more timely, you know.
0: Yeah. And I should just mention, because I know a lot of our listeners will know, but women aid, women's aid defines coercive control as a persistent pattern of controlling coercive and threatening behaviour, including all or some forms of domestic abuse by a boyfriend, partner, husband or ex. So it's a much more sort of subtle and because it's more subtle, it's more difficult to detect a form of abuse and it can trap women, mostly women, but obviously men as well in a relationship. Um the other thing that I think anyone who's who reads your book will immediately think of is Clodagh Hall. And Alan Hall um, murdered his family in this sort of what's known as family annihilation. I mean, that's one case. And the, the interesting thing, the reason I thought about Clodagh Hall, particularly reading your book, was because you know, Jenny in your book doesn't have a voice. We hear only from Des. He's the most, like you say, unlikable person, irritating, smug, self aggrandizing just horrible character. But also you don't hear from Jenny. Her voice isn't there. And um, it made me think of that hashtag, you know, her name is Clodagh, when um, Clodagh and her three boys were murdered by her husband, Alan Hall. At the beginning, because we, could, we didn't see a picture of her. In fairness, now the media didn't have a good picture, so that's why it happened. But it was this sense that this female victim had been made invisible. Was that in your mind too? I mean, Jenny doesn't get a look in in this book in terms of telling her story.
2: Yeah, I suppose there's two kind of um, aspects to your question. So the first one I'll just um, uh, talk about is the fact that I deliberately set up Des as the first person narrator of the novel. And, you know, when I was writing it at first, you know, I did, I I, did, I, was consciously aware that Jenny didn't have a voice and that was a deliberate tactic of mine. Um, and it was in a sense, illuminating that a lot, as you said, mainly women, but obviously we, we know that men suffer in the same situation or that, you know, there are cases for men. So it was a deliberate um, tactic of mine to set to set it up um, in that way. And I know lots of people want to hear from Jenny all the time. A lot of readers are saying, what about Jenny? And, but that is actually kind of the point of the novel, you know, that she doesn't have the voice. And um, I suppose to answer the other part of the question is the novel is not based on any one particular case at all. It's It's kind of what I'm trying to do is, you know, I was obviously aware that there were cases, you know, in the media of these kind of, uh, you know, dreadful um, things. And um, I suppose, you know as a writer, you you absorb what's going on in your world. And, you know, that's kind of part of the writing process is to try and find that space in your creativity to kind of, you know, absorb what's going on in the world and to kind of try and explore. Not necessarily make sense, but just explore, you know. Um, So I was, I think what what I was trying to do was look kind of at all cases, you know, and trying to find, explore the common Teams that, that were emerging, you know, from these cases, and, and really my motivation was to, going back to my first point was, you know, the whole concept of of you know hurting the people that you love the most in the world is just so unfathomable to me, and I just was really that's something that's always struck with me through all these cases. How how can this happen? And and that was that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get into the mind of of somebody who, on the outside, is supposedly in inverted commas normal to the outside community and work out how how can this happen because you know it's not that's another reason I also set up Des as you know I didn't want him to have any overt mental health issues you know I just wanted to show that how can these things happen you know so it's a very kind of um it's it's not based on any one particular case um it's just an, an exploration of of uh, all these cases and, and why why they happen after I read
0: your book, I did go down a bit of a rabbit hole in terms of family annihilation because there has been some studies on it and stuff. One of the things I found out with that, it's, which I found incredible, that this uh, type of horrendous crime is most common in Sundays in August and particularly the last Sunday before going back to school, which is actually when Alan Hall. Uh, killed his family, and in your book as well, was that something you were aware of? Because I was kind of like, "Wow, that's so interesting."
2: Not at all. I mean, I remember thinking, you know, about things like, um, you know, what are the kind of, what are the, what are the trigger points of, you know, parents and difficulties, and I remember thinking in my head you know, for a family, maybe the price of a pair of school shoes might be a bit horrendous or the book list coming in. You know, the way if there's a couple of people in the family and the especially say in secondary school and the book lists start to come expensive. I think that's just completely coincidental that I chose that time. Really coincidental. Um, you know, and I was, you know, I, I, I didn't realise that when I was writing it at all. That feels even more sad to know that, but it was not deliberate writing at all.
0: Yeah, no, but the other thing is um, I felt reading it and like I talked earlier about kind of from the outside, when you looked at you looking at Des and Jenny's relationship, you know, he coaches the underage, the underage football team. He's very much out there in the community. Um the other thing that gets said about um, men when they do these things, and it is mostly men, is the kind of good man who snapped narrative. So, you know, everyone's very surprised and everyone's kind of like, oh, he was devoted family man and all of that kind of thing. So that's why I think your book is fascinating, because what you're doing is you're kind of going behind that to see how somebody can portray themselves in a certain way and actually the reality behind uh, is so different but also so hidden um, to everybody except the people in the house.
2: I know and it's funny just even going back to your last point about you know wh- when you chose to, to set the scene it was like it's funny because I remember or not funny but just thinking back to you know because I swim down the beach in Kalini every morning as, 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 as you know and I just, you know, at the end of the summer, you always see the ice cream van there up parked on the ramp, you know, and there's always that sense of like sadness that the summer's over and one more ice cream. And, and you know, I think that's another thing that just always struck me as well, you know, about the timing and everything.
0: But I'm just talking about that um, perception of a family. So we do, I mean, it's, it's a very big cliche to say we don't know what goes on behind closed doors. But, you know, there's, there's uh, people's ability like Des in your book to... Uh, portray this amazing kind of family united and, uh, you know, he's a new man, you know, he does, he cooks and he, he does all the things. And if you were looking at it from the outside, you'd think he was grand, but you really very skillfully show how both of those things can be true at the same time.
2: Yeah, or should I think another, like, sort of to answer your question, I suppose another thing I'm looking at is, you know, when you meet people and you're kind of, you know, you're, there's something, there's something just kind of a little bit off about them and you, and you just, you you know, you just don't, you, you don't think about it, but then it's only when you hear things later on, you go, there was always something about that, that that situation that I couldn't put my finger on. I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get at, that kind of underlying sense of, you know, what it is, what, what was it about them? And when we don't know, you know, that's the thing we don't know, because it's all subtle, as you say. And, and, and I know it's a cliche to say, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but the truth is we don't.
0: Mm. And I think that's what makes your book so powerful, actually, just the fact that it kind of gives that glimpse in a very real way. Talk to me about how you came up with the idea um, in the first place. And and you, you say that you you started with Des. He was a very strong character. So it was it kind of was he almost driving it that, you know, once you had this voice and you had this image of this man, it kind of the rest followed
2: yeah, he was a, like he was a very strong character so it was very character driven um so everything in his hideous horrible world seemed to unfold before his eyes and and even though they were hideous and relentless they seemed to make sense to him. The actual inspiration for writing the book was when I was walking my kids to school one morning and it was um a beautiful September morning it was very crisp and I you know deposit them at school as you do. Went off to meet a friend for coffee out in Greystones. She was home from Australia for um, a, a little bit, and so I had the coffee. Came back and heard about a case on the radio where a child had been killed um, by 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 the mom. And I, I, it really struck me how you know it was just I suppose the juxtaposition of what I had done. It was so simple, and then to come back to hear that it, it, everything about the weather and just ugh, I don't know. It just struck me as being so upsetting and that that was the thing that really stayed with me and and you know I think that notion has never really left me and I just wanted to always explore that and then Des Des kind of you know he grew from he grew as a character and then I was kind of interested then in motivation, you know, it's not just, and that's why I deliberately set him up as not your typical, you know, character with obvious mental health issues. I'm not saying that people can't, but I'm just saying that my exploration is for somebody who doesn't obviously have um, those kind of issues. So um, I just kind of, yeah, I just kind of went with that, you know, And, and then, oh, sorry, I've just, um, I kind of was looking for the motivation factor and I struck on the theme of jealousy and I wanted to explore. Is that actually enough of a driver, you know, for for somebody to commit something like this?
0: Um, what has the feedback been like? Because when I was reading, I was thinking, oh, this is a very good book club book. I can imagine the conversation. So it's only been out a short time. But um, what are you hearing back apart from people saying they would have liked to hear more from Jenny? What What's the other because it's quite a grim read, but it's very captivating at the same time.
2: I think people, I mean, the feedback's been great. I'm really happy with the feedback, you know, like it's, I feel that, like, especially some of the reviews, like, I feel like they're really capturing what it is I was trying to capture, which is really gratifying, you know. Um, so I would say the feedback's been really positive. Um, and it's kind of, you know, I think, again, it's kind of, it's kind of sad as well, because it just seems to be, you know, just even more kind of timely. Um, so that's coming out. Yeah. Um, I think the fact that, you know, we don't often see this in this year is coming out as well. Um, people are, seem to be drawn by that. And also, you know, what's coming out is that it's a page turner, which is, which is really great, obviously. And people seem to be, you know, captivated from, from the first line. Um, they also seem to be not too worried that it's a plot spoiler, you know, that, that they're getting the whole, um, which is great. They're getting the whole idea that it's the psychological suspense of not what will happen, but, but why.
0: It's not a who done it. It's a why done it.
2: Yeah, and I feel like I'm, I'm. I feel like it's great because I feel like what I set out to do is. Is you know, readers are kind of understanding that what I'm trying to do and, and and recognizing it so that's fantastic you know.
0: Well Catherine one thing I think is brilliant about you is that you kind of came to writing a little bit later in life but you really when you did decide you wanted to do it uh, after having some stuff submitted to various literary yeah. journals and things you really invested in yourself so you went off and you you know it's it's an expensive thing to go back to college you know to, to stop working and to take a year you went and did that master's in trinity of creative writing um, and I know there'll be people listening who kind of maybe that their dream or something they'd like to do. Can you tell us how you came to that conclusion that it was worth? I mean, obviously, you were were in the privileged position where you could do it, which is the first thing to say. But even still, even people who can do it don't always do it because it takes a certain amount of courage, I think.
2: I think it's just, yeah, um, absolutely. It is expensive. My poor husband. (laughs) No, but as you know, I always say, like, I I mean, I did do um, a degree by night in English and philosophy in UCD and all the time that like back in the 90s and all the time I was working in the arts and cultural industry in Dublin. Like lots of people at that time, you know, got married, had my kids and you're just so busy, you know, so. It was, you know, I was re- I was reading the whole time all my life and I was really into reading and I was always really interested in writing. I was always interested in the lives of writers. So I started, you know, submitting bits and bobs on my own and I started getting a little bit of success. So then I just thought, right, there's no good time to do a master's. I can never afford it, but I'm going to do it anyway. So that was a, that was that was a difficult year, you know, in, in terms of trying to organize the kids and, you know, trying to, you know, They were still kind of at that age where they couldn't quite open the door themselves, you know, so there always had to be kind of somebody there. So we're just trying to negotiate all that. Um, So I suppose I was really determined. Um, I felt that um, I didn't realise it at the time how much drive I had. It was only when I finished the the Masters that I realised that I, I mean, I was working very hard. You know, I was looking at the clock in the reading room in Trinity. I remember going, OK, I've got four hours before I get the dart you know that kind of way and straight home then to be dealing with the, the children and all that but I don't know I, I think I I always felt I could write a novel um, and I just thought why not me and I think that's a bit of a leap of faith and and I think because writing is very solitary and it's all about you really don't know how, how if you're any good or how good you are until you start sharing your work so I think that master's was great because it just gave me the confidence, really gave me that confidence in my work, you know, so.
0: Tell me about how you write, because I'm always interested in this, like Cecilia Hearn writes everything longhand first and people have various different uh, rituals and routines. Have you established your own uh, sort of uh, routine as a writer?
2: Yeah, I think I'm a bit like Cecilia Hearn there. I didn't realise she wrote long uh, longhand. Yeah, everything I do is longhand. And that was never a conscious decision. It's just something that I started to do. I think in the beginning it's longhand because I was probably sitting down to go, right, I'm going to teach myself how to write a novel and I'm going to do four pages at a go and just sit down and see what happens. So that because it started to work, I just kept going. So um, it, I just basically keep writing Um I, I go for a swim in the morning, come home and uh, try and ignore the house because it's a complete mess, <laughs> like it's a disaster. But I don't care um, because it'll always be a mess. And I was like that earlier on, even before I started writing, you know, I'd just be reading and there'd be piles of ironing to do and I just didn't do it. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I write everything longhand, never look back at my work, even if it's absolutely brutal, I just keep going. And I think um, in the beginning, that's a bit of a gamble, but now because I've been successful and gotten good further published, I'm really delighted to do that because I think that's the key. You need to just keep the juices flowing. And like a lot of you, what you write isn't great, but you worry about it later. So I kind of write about seven or eight, you know, A4 hardback foolscap cap or, you know, the hardback notebooks. And then when I feel that's at the end, then I go back and I start typing everything up. And that's really where it is becomes, you know, it shapes itself and you're adding, deleting. But sometimes you, well, you know, a lot of the time, everything that you've written, not everything that you've written, but a lot of the bones are there and you never change it, which is, is quite gratifying, actually. So
0: did you start doing that um, for this book in, in your master's?
2: I started that kind of just towards the end of the Masters. So I just kept going then and within about just under a year I had a first draft.
0: And did you just send it off to a load of publishers?
2: No, I just sent it off um, I just sent it off to Penguin and I think one other publisher and um, Penguin really liked it. So that was just really, really great. You know, I was delighted with that. That must
0: have been some day when you got that letter or email or phone call. What was it?
2: I got a phone call and it was a great day because um, I think it was actually Valentine's Day. It's like the most romantic day of my life.
0: brilliant i mean i think people love to hear these stories because you know it's just very you just decided you got to be in your bonnet about this is something i've always wanted to do i'm going to invest in it i'm going to try it and then you really did and you came up with a great idea that obviously hooked penguins straight away and they could see the potential so you presumably are are still uh, scribbling away in those i shouldn't say scribbling that sounds very de- uh, demeaning i don't mean it like that it is scribbling roisin What well, is is it scribbling okay you're still scribbling away in your a4 notebooks what are you working on at the moment
2: so I'm working on a book at the moment my second novel It's the working title is called Two Lives and it's I'm kind of on third draft as in when I mean third draft I mean third I'm at the typing up third draft stage so now I'm at the point where I'm fixing the grammar you know Um, the overall story is there it's about um, it's about two men and their their work colleagues and um, it's kind of about their relationship it's not um, like a romantic relationship it's just kind of a sort of father and son relationship the older man is 40s is married but never had children. His wife didn't actually want to have children. So he's now kind of, you know, working with this guy in his 20s and it's kind of just about their friendship and, and what they get up to various things. But it's kind of like, you know, a study of, I think it's about kind of the son that he that he would have liked to have had.
0: And have you anything else in the pipeline? Because I know, uh, like you say, everyone wants to hear from Jenny. Is that something you might explore, Uh Des's wife,
2: That he yeah. never got a chance? Yeah, that is something that's completely come... From, you know, the response to the book, um, a lot of people have said they just would love to hear Jenny's story. So I'm kind of doing two jobs. I'm kind of trying to type up the, the, the second book and I'm kind of handwriting like a kind of a prequel to A Good Father where I'm going to be looking at Jenny and then also looking. So trying to give her a voice finally and then also giving Jerome the ex-boyfriend a voice so it's early days on that one, Roisin. It's kind of like, you know, I'm probably about I'm halfway through my second notebook on that one. OK,
0: <laughs> well, I'm definitely looking forward to to, to reading that as well. Um, tell me about the pandemic, because it's affected writers in so many different ways. And for you, it was going to be the time when your debut novel, A Good Father, was out. And of course, it all had to had to be delayed. How, how was that experience?
2: It was... Um pretty awful in the beginning, to be honest, um, because, you know, you're so set up to to go and it was so close to go as well. You know, we were looking at, um, we'd booked the book launch and where it was going to be and, you know, the sort of, you know, beginning to get quite good, you know, media interest and stuff. So, yeah, the timing couldn't have been worse in the terms, in the sense that there was this kind of elephant in the room called a few coronavirus cases. And I just started thinking... You know, we were still planning the launch, and I at that stage it was kind of like I think you could put fifty people at a gathering. So it was just we were just keep going, right to the very furthest to my is Louise Farrell, she's brilliant. She just kept going, and we just you know we were just waiting to see what would happen. And then when we kind of got to the you know the book start bookshop started to close, or you know there was they were talking about closing the bookshop. So at that stage, you know we had a meeting and we decided that it was going to go back by ten months, which was really hard to take. Um. But I knew, I actually knew it was the right thing. But that period of time of knowing it was the right thing and actually accepting it was quite hard for the first three weeks. I really, it's, to be honest, to be perfectly honest, it's the only thing I could think about.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you've had all this build up, you know, the years of doing it, writing it, getting it to a point where it was going to be published, having a physical thing of it and then not being able to do anything but
2: it was devastating but I mean yeah you just I actually thought at one stage God's playing a funny trick in me you know that kind of way like I just thought it it was almost felt like a like a this can't be happening but then honestly after about three weeks of deciding what we're going to have for dinner is it going to be more pasta or more like like bean stew god I got so tired of uh like food you know, the thought of it didn't, it just became a knot or just kind of relentless. So after about three weeks, I just kind of went, right, that's happening. Get over yourself. Um, honestly, there's an awful lot more worse things happening. I mean, I really was, I was looking, people were in pain, people were dying. This was such a small thing at the end of the day. And, you know, look at the, I was also thinking of actors, musicians, like, I mean, at least as my husband was saying, you still have your product, You know, like a friend of mine is an actor and she lost out on lots of shows that I mean, hopefully they'll happen again. But it's just so down the line, you know, at least I still had my physical book.
0: Yeah. Um. just finally, before you go, Catherine, uh, if there's anyone listening who kind of has harbored, because I know so many people do this idea of being a writer, but never having the courage or the capacity to do it. Is there any advice you would give people having been through that yourself? Um, I know it's worked out so well for you, but even success for some people really is just sitting down with with the page, the empty page and starting to fill it.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, there's such a focus on being published as well. And I mean, even if you're not published, like that's what my husband said to me. Like, I remember thinking, okay, I because I love, you know, there's so so many writers I love. I love Paul Oster, Carlo of and all these people. And I'm going... Like, actually, that's why Knusker and I love him as well so much because he talks about that idea of, you know, why not him? You know, just go for it. And I just think there has to be, you have to kind of, even if you don't get published, I don't think it matters in that. In, I mean, obviously, everybody wants to get published and it's absolutely amazing to get published and that's your goal. But you do get other, you know, satisfaction of just writing because I remember my husband saying, just write and, you know, at least you're writing for yourself. Um. But I think to take that leap, it's just, it's not like something like, oh, I've I've always wanted to be a writer and that's it. It's not like that. It's just, it's something you just really want to do. And you've got, you've got to work very hard. Like it isn't easy. Um, but I think if you're, I, I always think like hold your nerve. I think it's really important. Read lots. And I, do, I remember one of my professors in Trinity saying to me that like, if your work's good enough, it, it'll find its way you know, eventually it'll find its way. You'll just, the, you'll get, you'll know, you'll meet the right reader who'll like it, the right editor who'll see what you're trying to do. And I think if your work is good enough, it will get out there.
0: Well, that, that's a good advice. And also hold your nerve is something we all need to be doing these days, whether we're writing or not.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think holding your nerve is really important because there, it is risky, you know, because, you know, you. As you go back to earlier on, like you, do, you never really know what you're doing is is really good until you get reader's response and feedback. And then I think you just, there is a risk to just go with, go with your, I mean, if you look at artists do it, don't they, with paintings, they just, they know when it's right to them and they just kind of, they just kind of hold their nerve. And I think that's really hard to do, but when you do it and it pays off, it's great. <laughs>
0: Well, Catherine, your book is called A Good Father. It is an absolutely gripping read and I wish you all the best and all the success in future too. Thanks very much.
2: Thank you so much.
0: That was Catherine Talbot there and I can really recommend the book. It's called A Good Father. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. You can contact us on social media at IT Women's Podcast or drop us an email on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves, and I will talk to you next time. Hold up.